John chapter 1, we're still in this first chapter. It's, uh, the series is called Only Believe, and we've got a long ways to go to get to chapter 21. So turn with me uh, to verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, we can put one in your hand. Just raise your hand. We're glad to put one in your hand. John chapter 1. We haven't done this in a while. Why don't we stand as we read God's Word, just in reverence to Him? This is another old school thing common in the 20s, 30s, other time periods, uh, when we were more attentive to being in a posture to hear from God. And I really believe we've become so super cash in our society that we've forgotten about the holiness of God and the reverence of God. And so thank you for standing as we just read this passage together. John chapter 1, starting verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? That We may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent from the Pharisees, those who were sent from the Pharisees, then they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Let's pray again. Father, we ask for the help and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Speak through your word. Lord, I pray you'd anoint me, but not because of me, but Lord, that you would be heard. As a matter of fact, remove me from the equation that we might hear from your word, your power, your spirit. Lord, teach us, but Lord, may we have teachable hearts, listening ears. Lord, may... I who is speaking and those who are listening, may we collectively grow in the grace of Jesus this morning. We thank you for this time in your word. Lord, use it to build us up for your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So uh, these, this text, this part of the passage of chapter 1, is a continuation of John's unique role. Would you guys agree that John had a unique role? John the Baptist I'm talking about. His unique role... And in the ministry and the revelation of Jesus to Israel and that first century world. And it's here in the text that we're in today, and then also next week in verses 29 through 35, where John formally begins to step aside and make way for Jesus to pass through into his ministry. This was, of course, the entire intent of John's life and ministry is directed by God. John knew from, a childhood, from his childhood he would be yielding to the Messiah. He was called before birth to go before the Messiah and to yield to his Messiah and the world's Messiah. Every single day, the moon, you guys see the moon lately? A few uh, days ago or weeks ago, I remember what it was. Uh, we had that full moon. It was beautiful. And we had the big full harvest moon. But every single day the moon 
it always is reflecting that light of the rising sun. And so uh, we see that sun come up in the morning, and the moon just kind of disappears from the horizon. And the sun rises, but the sun is the giver of the light to the moon we see at night. And it's the same thing. John is kind of receding, or he's about to recede, and the light of Jesus, the light that's going to dawn there in ancient Israel, in Judah, and in Galilee is dawning. And we see here that similar dynamic of, of John and Jesus. Uh, and Jesus who in fact is not just bright like the sun, but he's the light of the world. The very one who's given light to the sun. And John the Baptist is essentially pointing to the horizon and saying, soon, very soon, all of you within earshot of me are going to see the light that exceeds all lights. Now the Apostle John has already mentioned the divine importance of John the Baptist's calling. We, we all saw that in verses 1 through 18 where the Apostle John lays out who John the Baptist is. He's not, he's not the light. He testified of the light. Remember that back in uh, verses of 4 and 5, for example. He's already quoted John in verse 15. In verse 15, he quotes John the Baptist. But here is the first scene that he's described a specific event and moment in John the Baptist's life that was a pivotal prelude to Jesus being fully unveiled. Because as of yet, Jesus is still kind of off stage. By the way, I mentioned last week uh, that the Hebrew name for John is Yohanan. Anyone, anyone named John here in the room? All right, so what, just one? How many? Just one? Yeah, you're John E. I guess that counts. Forget there's uh, ladies too that, you know. All right, so we've got two in the room and two in the text. So, uh, so we've got uh, the name means, uh, well, the Hebrew name is Yohanan. So if you want to be by your Hebrew name, Yohanan, Yohani, I don't know how that goes, uh, you know, for, for John E. Um, but the name means Yahweh is gracious. The name means Yahweh is gracious. And indeed, Yahweh is gracious. Amen? In the scriptures, names always mean important things. Do you guys know that? Always mean important things. In John, in John the Baptist's case, his name was selected by God and delivered by an angel to Zacharias. Remember, Zacharias was like, his name is John. That's what it's going to be. Because the angel of the Lord told him. So the forerunner's name, the forerunner being John the Baptist, his name means God is gracious. And anytime he points to Christ, it's as if to say, there's the visible proof, the tangible flesh, that God is gracious. Every time John points, it's like his finger is saying, God is gracious. God is gracious. Every time he points to Jesus. Now, of course, the Apostle John, remember we have two Johns in the room, the Apostle John, his name means the same thing. His name means God is gracious. They have the same name, Yohanan. The Apostle John, he writes the last of the four Gospels. Remember, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were already written. He writes John. And he also writes the last book of the Bible called what? The book of Revelation. Interesting. Emphasizing again that the Gospel of Jesus and the Revelation of Jesus, written with the underscore God is gracious. 
So the Apostle John, John the Baptist, both kind of, the Bible talks about two witnesses establish things. God is gracious. Back to John the Baptist and his God-given message and ministry. If you're taking notes, and those of you online, if you're joining us, uh, maybe you're just logging in, the title this morning, again, you see it on the uh, screen, Yielding to the Worthy One. None of us will ever be called to duplicate John the Baptist's ministry. Are you kind of glad about that, by the way? Do you, do you want to wear camel skin your whole life? Do you want to eat locusts and honey? Actually, there's, a ministry, there, there's actually a company in Israel. I looked it up online. They now sell, and I am going to order it. I'm going to order me some locusts to eat. I, uh, no, I, it's supposed to be the world's perfect food. It has the combination of protein, fiber. It, uh, this is all true. Vitamins, all this stuff. So I don't know, they, they serve it in different ways, and you can have it, in, and I really do want to try it because I'm like, God gave manna, which we can't get our hands on anymore, but then he gave John locusts, which we still can get our hands on. So I'm thinking, all right, maybe there's something about this, but, but really, he really did live a very unique life in the wilderness, Primarily, not exclusively, primarily, but eating locusts and honey, wearing camel skin, and really crying out to the nation, repent, make way. Very unique ministry. No one else was given John's ministry, but all the prophets had some interesting things. You see prophets that were called to bury a sash, or they were called to make a scale model like, like Ezekiel did, and you know they were called to really... Um, stand in a time when nobody wanted to hear them. And so John is raised up for this specific calling uh, at a time when the world was not really uh, even understanding what the Messiah would really be like. John is called to this unique ministry to be the forerunner to point to Jesus. But all of us are called to yield our lives fully. Amen? We're all called to yield our lives uh, you were made specially unique for your calling. God has called every one of us to fully yield to the one who is worthy. And so let's learn this morning to walk the way John did, to learn from his walk, and to be more in awe of the worthiness of Jesus. Amen? Turn your attention back to verse 19. First thing I want to look at, at what I've titled uh, John's Interrogation. Now this is the testimony, verse 19 again. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny and said, or confessed, I'm not the Christ. Each of the four Gospels, so John's going to get interrogated here. We'll talk about what that means in just a second. But each of the four Gospels present John the Baptist's ministry as part of the Gospel record. So if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels feature John and his role within the first three chapters of any one of the Gospels. Luke starts in chapter 1, and he actually tells us of John's birth and his divine calling. Luke chapter 1. We call that the Christmas story. Then it goes into, you know, you've got uh, Jesus' birth, and all that takes place in the book of Luke. But it, Luke 1, John's birth actually comes first. Matthew... Matthew mentions the religious leaders coming out to John, where John very tactfully says, you brood of vipers. <laughs> How to win friends and influence people, right? Uh, 
John very tactfully calls them a brood of vipers and asks them, who warns you of the wrath to come? That's in Matthew's gospel. You'll see that recorded. Um, so we have a precedent for those of us who are called to preach the word of God to sometimes just call things out the way they need to be called out. It's not going to be comfortable. It's not fun. I sometimes wish I had a different job, but you have to call what God says it needs to be addressed. Hypocrisy in leaders and empty religion can't be ignored. That's what John was saying. The Holy Spirit says you need to point at them, not because you're better than them, but because they're in hypocrisy. They actually are trying to destroy people, but they're acting like they're for the people. We see that today still, right? Leaders that act like they're for the people, but they're really not. They're really, their hearts are set on destruction. So he called them a brood of vipers. A viper will, will sink its teeth into you and inject venom. And what Jesus wants to do is the opposite. He wants to put the Holy Spirit in us. The enemy wants to put the poison of self-will in. But, but only John documents the actual, right here in John chapter 1, only the Apostle John documents the actual dialogue of the religious leaders trying to figure out who John is, who gave him his authority to do what he's doing because they didn't do it, and why is he doing what he's doing, i.e. baptizing and preaching and calling people to repentance. Uh, it's an inquiry, but it's with more suspicion than it actually is sincerity. They're coming to John the Baptist more suspicious, like, look at this guy, camel skin, lives out here. He's a nut job. You know, what, what is he doing? Who does he think he is? So in essence, it's more of an interrogation, but this is especially clear. I, I wouldn't just say that if I didn't have other ample evidence in the text of the scriptures themselves. Um, this is especially clear when we see that Jesus later, how many of you think Jesus has a pretty good idea what pe what's behind people's hearts? what their real intentions are, what their real motives are. So Jesus later confronts the religious leader's assessment of John and his ministry, and we see it in Matthew, we see it in Mark, and we see it in Luke, where Jesus assesses their assessment by asking them a question. He kind of presents them with a little conundrum, and it's found in Luke chapter 20 on the screen. You can see Luke chapter 20, verse 3, 3 through 6. But he answered and said to them, this is Jesus confronting the leaders on their assessment of John the Baptist. I also will ask you one thing, and you answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? That's a pretty simple question. You should have an answer. We think it's from heaven. The other side, we think it's from men. All right. And they reason among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? There's the crux of the issue right there. Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us. They are persuaded that John is a prophet. See, people that have bad motives, they think, hey, we got a cushy job. We like living this way, and everyone thinks we're big stuff. So if we don't say that John was something, you know, then we can get stoned. So we'll just say we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I answer you. So Jesus was saying, look, the bottom line is you don't even believe John's witness about himself. You, you portend uh, that you believe it, but you really don't believe what John is saying. 
if that isn't the definition of political opportunist, I don't know what is. So they had that kind of, uh, you know, kind of play both sides of the fence, and, but really didn't believe the things that John said. So when they're coming, they do have to report back, but it's not really a whole lot of that they really believe what John's saying. They just need to get what, we just need a record of what you're, what you're saying, you, or who you're saying you are, what you believe, and, and what it is that um, you're doing and why you think you have the authority to do it. Uh, inward rejection of God, understand this. Inward rejection of God. You, there's people around the world that are very religious. Matter of fact, when I'm talking to religious people, I've told archers many times, I use John chapter 3 with very religious people because some people are not um, rejecting God. They truly haven't heard the gospel yet. Like they, they might be devout in Islam. They might be doubt, devout in Hinduism. They might be devout in Jehovah's Witness or whatever else. And they might really believe what they believe. And so you want to be loving, you want to be compassionate, you present the truth. But there's also people that flatly reject the truth, and they have an inward rejection, but they have an outward spirituality, and that's what Jesus was confronting. That's what he's saying, you're full of dead men's bone, or John's saying, brood of vipers. These are people that are actually, they actually know the truth, reject the truth. Remember, this was the case of Judas, right? Judas knew Jesus. He walked with Jesus, and he rejected it for money, right? Seems like a really bad move, right? You reject your soul for 30 pieces of silver. But an inward rejection of God still will often have an outward spirituality where there's no real care for the truth, and you would pander to people to retain power. And so remember, the re religious leaders of that day, they had the best seats at the, at the table. They were well taken care of. They had a salary that far exceeded the people. They lived above the people and suppressed. And so Jesus, uh, understanding that you're not really interested in truth here, you just want to be able to, uh, be able to check the box so you can go back to the high priest and leader and say, we did our due diligence, here's who he thinks he is. And they probably would again look to sabotage wherever possible, such as they would do with Jesus. But the inquiry and interrogation of John, it's brief, you can see from the text, um, John gives very short, direct answers, doesn't he? Short, concise answers. And the more confident you and I are in Christ and the Holy Spirit living in us and the Scriptures, we don't have to ramble on. We can just speak the truth. Matter of fact, when you've ever tried to like argue someone into the kingdom, how successful was it? You could debate people for days and go absolutely nowhere express your love for them, express this is what God says, and really let the seed germinate. You cannot argue people into the kingdom. Now, I'm not saying to not have, if someone will, willingly wants a dialogue and says, hey, I have questions, that's a different thing. I'll ask people, hey, meet over coffee, I'd be glad to kind of go through the scriptures. There's a gen genuine interest, but if it's just to push back and say, I just want to convince you you're wrong, 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 John doesn't do anything other than say, this is the answer. Simply speak the truth. Um, you see what he says. I'm not the Christ. Are you then Elijah? I am not. The inquiry here, uh, it's own, my own observation, but I also believe uh, that John anticipated what the leaders thought that John may have thought about himself. Does that make sense? In other words, they're coming to John Whenever you're talking to somebody, they're making an assessment of you, and you're usually making an assessment of them in some way, shape, or form. 
but they're coming and they're talking to John, and I believe that to some extent they think they have an idea of what John thinks of himself. Notice their questions. Who are you? And remember, they know John is a Levite. They know he's from the tribe of Levi. They know his dad, Zacharias, uh, was a Levite. Uh, they knew he was born into the priesthood, but he has spurned the priesthood for a prophet ministry. He didn't spurn it. He was just obeying God, so he's wearing a camel skin instead of the, the robes that they would be wearing. And remember, they knew, of course, uh, all of this. Uh, when you look at uh, John's first answer, it's like he's hearing an addition to their question. Because they don't say, are you the Christ? They say, who are you? And he says, I'm not the Christ. Uh, as if he thinks that they think that, that, that they think he thinks. Does this make sense? That they think he thinks he's the Christ. But he's never told anyone he's the Christ, has he? No. Nowhere else, John never once said, hey, everyone, I am the Christ. He, he says, anticipates where they may be going, says, I'm not the Christ. First and foremost, let's just get that off the table. I am not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah. Never claimed such a thing. They go on, so then they say, uh, well, are you Elijah? Remember, Elijah went up in a fiery chariot. In other words, has God sent you back to the earth uh, in a chariot? And interestingly enough, God does send Elijah back on the Mount of Transfiguration with none other than the first prophet, because Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, because then they say, are you the prophet? And he says, no. Elijah and Moses do appear with Jesus. Isn't that interesting that the two names that they want to know, well, first one is Messiah, who is Jesus. Second one is Elijah, who stands on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And then when they say the prophet, that's Moses originally. They're expecting a second Moses. Because Moses said in uh, 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 sorry, Deuteronomy 18.15 that the Lord will raise up a prophet like unto me. So interesting, the names that they mention all will appear with Jesus. Um, but they realize uh, if they keep guessing, they're going to keep getting no, right? So finally they say, um, so who do you, what do you say about yourself? Okay, finally, tell us who you are. We know who you're not now. Tell us who you are. And so John does, by the Holy Spirit, um, begin to tell him, tell them who he is. Let's take a look at this next point if you're taking notes. John's identification. We looked at his interrogation, the questions that are coming his way. Now he identifies himself for them and for us and for all those that were there at that time. John knew who Jesus was and John knew who John was because he had surrendered his life to the mercy of God and to the call of God. The same is true for us. Do you agree with that? The same is true for us. If we agree to the will of God, we'll know who we are in Christ. If we believe by faith in Jesus, do you know who you are right now in Christ? Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know what he's called you to do? do you, is your identity in the will of God or is your identity in self-will? Because a lot of people have a self-will identity. I'm a self-made man. You ever heard that term? What part of you did you make? Your kidneys? Your tongue? What part of your hair color? If I was self-made, I'd have been 6'4", for goodness sake. I used to play basketball in high school, and I didn't understand why God didn't make me 6'4", and you know, taller and bigger and stronger and all that other stuff. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God, 
I am, you can see it on the screen, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. What a true statement. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul knew, Paul had committed murder when he was working for the Pharisees. He deserved death, but God gave him life. God gave him a new calling. God gave him the ability to learn. And we spoke about six languages, we believe, that he could plant and harvest and all because God had given him a calling that he responded to. I love the humble but so relatable words of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. Um, They're so true for all of us. He said, I am not the man I ought to be. I am not the man I wish to be. And I am not the man I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am not the man I used to be. And that is so true. I mean, John, was a, uh, John Newton was a slave trader at one point in his life. And, uh, you know, I, I know, I remember my before Christ days. I am not that person. I'm not perfect now, and neither you or you're saved. But you remember where you came from. But even if you would grow up in a Christian home and, and you uh, follow the Lord like John the Baptist, he, he grew up in a righteous home and followed the Lord all of his life. But he still needed the grace of God. He still, his identity was in God's hand upon him, not in himself. His ministry wasn't about what he created. It's what he received. We all need a new identity, and we need to grow in that new identity, that identity being in Christ, and that identity growing in grace. Now let's notice John's response. It's another one of those concurrent truths in Scripture, a principle of duality that we see multiple things at the same time being true, Whenever we study the scriptures, though, always remember that the straightforward meaning is the primary meaning. Does that make sense? The straightforward meaning is the primary meaning. In other words, if it says that Jesus is from Galilee, guess what? He's from Galilee, right? So that's straightforward. That's what it means. But there's other things that that will be also true in any specific text. But the, it's well said that the plain thing is the main thing. The plain thing is the main thing. Keep that uh, in perspective. And the straightforward understanding is that John says this. They ask him who he is. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, as was written by the prophet Isaiah. So the straightforward understanding is John is telling us unequivocally I am the very person that Isaiah was prophesying about, prophesying about in Isaiah 40, verse 3. They had read that passage, and probably up until that time, no one knew what it meant, specifically. John's like, you ever read Isaiah 43? That's me, right there. So all this time, this would be a hidden thing. John says, it's not hidden now. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. By the way, Jesus would also quote that verse attributing it to John, said he is the one that... So Jesus affirms John's uh, witness on this, and this is actually uh, referenced in each of the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all quote, and John, of course, here, all quote Isaiah 40, verse 3. Luke actually also quotes Isaiah 40, verses 4 and 5, additionally, where he says uh, more about uh, John's ministry. So you can read that in Luke chapter... um, I don't know the chapter, but it's also in the book of Luke. But John's unique ministry and role is verified in all four Gospels. John is testifying, you'll find me, you'll find that my voice is out here 
in the wilderness exactly as it was prophesied. Where did they find him? In the wilderness. If you've been to Israel, we, we've, we've been a couple times, and you, know, you get south of Jerusalem, and you get down into the desert there, and so it's just very much, you can get way out in the wilderness. Of course, Jesus went and fasted and prayed probably in the same area. But you have this wilderness area, and John says, I am out here exactly as it says. And my message is very simple. Get ready for the appearing of the Lord. Get ready for the appearing of the Lord, uh, the ushering in of his kingdom. He says, make straight the way of the Lord. So that was what was prophesied by Isaiah, and that is now what John is saying. Make straight the way of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it means that the crooked things, the corrupt things, are going to have to be straightened out because Jesus is sinless and righteous, and sin is going to have to... You know how the Red Sea just parted? Sin's going to have to part. And the righteous one is going to walk through, and so things are going to have to be straightened out. Do you think we need some straightening out of things in our society today? Do we have some corruption that needs cleaning? Some crooked things that need straightening? It was the same way in that time. You had the Roman leaders, you had the religious leaders. Uh, nothing's changed. The heart of man is always wicked, and so God has to set things straight. When you get saved, God sets you straight. What was broken is mended. And, and then, of course, where our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, the, the permanent healing and everything that's going to happen to us and, and the fact that we'll never have to struggle with sin ever again, that doesn't happen until we get to heaven. But we're made new now as if we hadn't sinned. God sees the righteousness of Christ on us. And so he's saying, the one that I am pointing to is the one that will make things straight. And I have to proclaim the truth and the righteousness of his kingdom that is coming, his purity, his holiness. Um, we're saying the same thing in 2020. We're telling the world that the coming one is coming and he really will make all things straight. He really will put the government on his shoulder. He really will bring his church home to him. We're saying the same thing today related to the second coming. John was pointing to Jesus' first coming because even though Jesus was born, a lot of people didn't know it. You know, the shepherds knew it that night, and what we see is the nativity scene, and the wise men knew it, and other people at different times, of course, his mother Mary and Joseph, they understood, but Jesus had not yet been revealed. John is saying the first coming is very soon. We talk about the second coming of Jesus now. But back to the first two words of his response in, uh, in Isaiah verse 40, verse 3. Look at the words. It says, I am the voice. Not the TV show. Different, uh, different voice. I am the voice. Notice what John isn't. He doesn't say, I am the word. Why? Because that title belonged to Jesus. We saw that in verses 1 through 18. The word is Jesus. John says, I'm, I'm the voice. I am the one that is repeating the word. I'm repeating the word, but I'm not the word. I'm the voice. You and I are just a voice. Amen? We are not the word. When people say, you, you Christians think you got all the answers. Nope. I just give you my Bible where the answers are. In fact, Isaiah was pointing to the word, and of course he was pointing to John's ministry in the process, but throughout, if you read Isaiah chapter 40, and I would encourage you to do so, if you read Isaiah 40, um, the power, the strength, the authority of the Lord is on display in chapter 40 of Isaiah. Just the majesty of God, 
But not only that, like numerous other passages in Isaiah, Isaiah as a book is very messianic. It's very pointing to the Messiah, pointing to the promised one of God, pointing to the one that would bring salvation. But the coming of Messiah is also the focal point of Isaiah 40. We're going to close with a passage from that, and I'll show you in just a few minutes um, where uh, where that passage is. But by the plan of God, John is repeating the faithful witness of Isaiah. John's repeating it and fulfilling the prophecy that he would be the voice of one called or one crying out in the wilderness. But unlike Isaiah, who lived 700 years before John the Baptist and Jesus, remember John the Baptist and Jesus are about six months apart. They were cousins uh, in, in the flesh. Jesus, of course, has no earthly father. He has God the Father, but John had Zechariah and, um, and Anna, his, his mother. But we have here 700 years earlier as Isaiah, but the formal unveiling of Messiah is now eminent. Unknown to John's listeners or his interrogators, and it's now one day away. How do we know that? Look at verse 29. This is looking to next week's text, but just take a look. Verse 29, what does it say? The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and says, behold the Lamb. Now that's next week's text that we'll look at. But they did not realize that the unveiling was one day away. And listen, that's a great reminder to us as believers that Jesus' second coming is imminent. It could be one day away. We don't know. We don't know when it is. A lot of times I I think that for the most part we don't really believe it could be one day away. We're pretty sure it's not one day away, so we kind of live that way. But we need to live on the, on the eminence of his return. Are we living like John in obedience to our calling? And are we pointing people to Jesus? Let me ask you this. Are we thankful? Those of you online, are you thankful and courageous that our identity is to be a voice, to be a light, to be salt in this world for Jesus? Are we understanding that we're to be a voice? We're to be a voice crying out, praying for people, being a light. And as far as naming the name of Jesus, as far as our real identity, uh, our identity should not be stuff about us. Are we ungrateful and uh, and embarrassed to name his name? A lot of people today don't want to name the name. If I do that, people think I'm weird. Well, that might be true. But when you stand before Jesus one day, what do you want to you want to say? Well, I would have named your name, but I thought people would think I'm weird. You thought your job interview was tough, <laughs> you know? You don't want to have that uh, as a discussion. Say, so, no, we want to be grateful to name His name and and get you know pray for courage to name His name and be a light. It wasn't easy. John the Baptist's ministry was not easy, but he did it in faithful obedience. The last thing we'll look at this morning. John's proclamation. We saw his interrogation. We saw his identification. Now his proclamation. Uh, what does he have to say in this closing portion of our text this morning? Uh, verse 24, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, why then do you baptize? If you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, John answered and said, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not 
worthy to loosen. By the way, I said Anna for Zacharias' wife. It's Elizabeth. I don't know why I said that. So anyway, don't have to edit that, Sean. I got it. It just came back to me. So I had a senior moment there for a moment, and uh, like, why did I say that? Uh, anyway, this is live, folks. This is live. This is not a recording. So, uh, but anyway, John, John told his audience who he is and what he's doing, but they have a follow-up question. He told them who he is, what he's doing. Essentially... If you're not on the level of Christ, they're like, all right, so you're not the Messiah. If you're not on the level of Christ, you're not Elijah, who they had great respect for. You're not the promised prophet, someone who would be equal to Moses, who they revered in the highest possible way. You're not equal to Moses. You're not equal to Elijah. You're not equal to Christ or the, the promised prophet that would be equal to Moses. So why are you baptizing people? Who do you think you are? Who gave you this authority to be dipping people in water? Because, by the way, when, when proselytes wanted to become Jews, when they wanted to come, you know, obviously they had to, they had to go through circumcision, but they had to be baptized as part of the process of becoming from a Gentile into Judaism. But those things were reserved for the priesthood. So who does John think he is? He, and, and why would Jewish people, who already are God's chosen people, why are they getting baptized? That was an affront. What are you, what are you doing? We're Abraham's children. We don't need this. Gentiles might need it, and even if they do need it, the priesthood would... Uh, remember, God had everything covered. John is of the priesthood. He's God's special priest and prophet for this calling, this very unique calling. But they were bothered by this. If you're not on the level, why are you baptizing people? And the simple answer is God told them to. Whatever God tells you to do, it was true for Moses... Who are you to confront Pharaoh? God told me to. All right. John the Baptist will later confront Herod. God told him to. Simple obedience. But before we look at his answer and proclamation, interesting that the religious leaders, they seem to be unaware that Christ and the prophet are the same person. You're not Christ and you're not the prophet, but actually Jesus is one and the same, right? He is the prophet unto Moses and he is the Christ, the Messiah the king. By the way, Christ and Messiah are interchangeable terms, same Greek, same Greek word. Also, they're obviously mistaken that Elijah is on the Messiah's level because Elijah is not on the Messiah's level. Elijah was a great prophet, but like all of mankind, Elijah needed a savior. Whereas the prophet and the Messiah or the Christ, well, that's Jesus and that's actually the Son of God. Uh, lastly, they're unaware that John is on Elijah's level. Because John, according to Jesus, the last of the great prophets, Jesus said of John, no man ever born a woman was greater than John the Baptist. So John actually is on Elijah's level. They're all messed up in their theology. That makes sense? They've got everything wrong. But again, when you're self-willed, you're going to get the scriptures wrong. And Peter, Remember Peter wrote to the church, he said, some people twist the scriptures to their own destruction. That only happens when you stop focusing on God and you're focusing on, how do I twist it for me? And that's what the religious leaders, they were always twisting the scriptures to put themselves on the throne as opposed to put the Lord on the throne. When we were in Israel, um, just coming, wrapping these things up in the last few minutes, when we were in Israel uh, a couple of years back, Joel Goldberg, who's with Nativa Ministries, and some of you that are here, you're with us, and uh, we were there at the Valley of Elah. Remember that? 
Johanan, Johanny, uh, you remember that? Uh, uh, we were there in, um, this is going to stick, I think, uh, for a while, you know, at least with me, but anyway. <laughs> so uh, we were there at, at the Valley of Elah, and, and that's where David defeated Saul, and just a beautiful scene, and Joel preached a message to us that I had never heard anyone preach before, and he paralleled the ministry of Jonathan and David, or the friendship of Jonathan and David, and the similarities between John the Baptist and Jesus. How Jonathan, he had the rightful place to the throne, but he yielded and gave way to King David. And John the Baptist had this ministry that was vibrant, and he yielded and gave way to Jesus. And both, it was just really, really cool to see. And in a lot of our Jewish believers in Jesus, God, I think God just gives them some great insights. Sometimes, you know, you guys know that one of my mentors, Sam, is a messianic believer that's planted churches all over the world. And, and just, it was really a, a great teaching. If I ever get uh, Joel here in the States, I'd love to have him preach that message for you guys. I think you'd really be blessed. But, but John's making none of this about him. He's not making any of this about him. He brushes aside his own ministry. He displays a humility that's so opposite of the religious leaders. John proclaims that it's not me you need to focus on. There's one here now that far exceeds me. He says, I'm not even worthy to touch his sandal. Uh, in the priesthood and, and in the Pharisees, among the Pharisees and scribes, they would have disciples. And their disciples had to do whatever the mentor said, or whatever the lead, their, uh, who's leading them in discipleship, whatever they said they had to do, with one exception, they did not have to touch the feet stuff. That was reserved for servants, which later Jesus would do that. Remember, he'd take the bowl and he'd wash the feet. He'd go that low. And John's saying, I'm not even worthy to do that job. It's not that I'm above it. I'm not even worthy. Does that make sense? He's like, I'm not above touching a sandal strap. I'm not worthy to touch his sandal strap. That would have been a mind-blowing thing. What do you mean not worthy? That's a, that's a gross, low-ranking thing. He's like, no, I'm not even worthy to touch his sandal strap. Um, he's saying, my ministry is all about the one you're soon going to see. My ministry is preparing the way for him. He's preferred, I am very unworthy. And that is who, brothers and sisters, that is who God uses. Those that know they're unworthy... And they simply walk after the Lord. They obey His commands, and they leave the results up to God, right? But if you walk in Christ, understand, as we come to a close here, your life will in some fashion, if you're going to really walk for Jesus, your life will in some fashion be interrogated by the world, will be interrogated by unsaved people, be interrogated by those that, that don't believe just yet, and they'll assess your identity in Christ. And they'll wonder, who are you? Why do you live like that? Why do you put those constraints on yourself? Why do you not do the things that we do? Peter wrote, you know, don't think it's strange. You don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation. Are you better than us? No. We say back. We say no. But we found grace in Jesus, and we know we're unworthy. But we're thankful he saved us, and we're thankful that he's called us to serve him. Understand that John lived a, a very observable life, John the Baptist. You could not mistake John. He was very observable. You could spot him a mile away wearing his camel skin. He lived an observable life, but he also had to open his mouth, and so will we. Amen? We're going to have to open our mouth. Not to ramble, but to speak truth and love. Why? Because Jesus is worthy, 
because we're called to be as eyewitnesses. We're called to be as witnesses. We're called to be grateful enough to speak about what he's done and what desires to do for many other people. Let me close with our eyes on the one who is worthy. I mentioned that, that if you read the rest of Isaiah chapter 40, you'll see that so much of it is not about John, verse 3, but mostly it's about the Lord and specifically Jesus as the Messiah. He's the worthy one. We saw all those other attributes of Jesus in the first 18 verses, but let's close with this verse from Isaiah, two verses from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and 11. So if John says he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's verse 3 of Isaiah 40. Get all the way down to verse 10 and look at this beautiful passage. Behold, the Lord shall come with a strong hand and his arms shall rule before him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. Who does that sound like? He will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. So John is saying, I'm in verse 3. You've got to get to verse 10 and 11. That's the one you need. That's the one John needs. That's the one we need. Amen? Let's close. Lord, we thank you again that it's not about us except for the fact that you came to save us from ourselves. But Lord, that we would then take on your identity, your grace of salvation. And Lord, that you would give us a new walk, a new home in heaven, but also a new calling in life to, as John did, walk in obedience, to represent you as an example, as a light in this dark place, but also, Lord, to be a witness, to speak of you, to point people to you. And Lord, I pray that we would yield to you in our life and see the fruit of us yielding to you. And Lord, be effective. Many came to faith because of John's ministry. And Lord, we want to see people come to faith. We don't want to see those that hate Christians never come to Christ. We, we don't want to see those that are atheists never come to Christ or those that believe in Allah as opposed to the living Christ. So we don't want to see those that don't know the truth and haven't received it not come to you. But Lord, we want to invite them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Lord, help us to yield to you so that you'll use us to be effective. We ask these things in your name. Amen.